Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about recent developments in the trucker convoy in Canada, escalations in Eastern Europe, and a lot of other happenings around the world. All that and more coming up. Let's get into the uh, not-so-rapid-fire news this time. I have a lot of stuff. A lot of things that didn't weren't big enough to get their own segments, but I f- thought were important, so I've put into the episode. So we'll start with Nigeria, who has a- been accused of conducting cross-border airstrikes that killed 12 people in Niger. Now, Nigeria has denied these allegations, And it seems like the Second Great African War is finally eliciting a response out of Nigeria, who up until this point has sort of been taking it on the nose, and we've been watching as 10, 20, 30, uh, constantly people have just been either being killed or kidnapped or disappearing. And, well... It seems Nigeria is finally doing something about it, and they've created an international incident doing so, but what can you expect, especially when the militants that are constantly harassing Nigeria in cross-border raids are operating in bases in Mali, and in the Sahel in general, but in Mali, Mali... No, not Mali, my my mistake. In Niger, in Niger, Nigeria doesn't have a border with Mali. Um, these militants, these Islamist militants, are operating in bases in Niger. Niger has not been able to deal with them very well. And Nigeria has had to bear the brunt of hundreds, if not thousands, of their people dying or going missing because of these bandits, the... That's basically what they are, bandits that keep crossing the border, keep violating their sovereignty, and keep hurting their citizens. So now you have Nigeria attempting to do something about it themselves, because from their point of view, it would seem that Niger either is incapable of handling these Islamists, or doesn't really care. In which case, Nigeria has to do something themselves, but you're talking about uh, airstrike on Niger soil. So now you have an international incident. The two aren't really getting along on this one, and this is probably going to continue um, slowly because you know they, Nigeria doesn't want to go upsetting its neighbors. It certainly doesn't want to make an enemy out of its northern neighbor when it already has a neighbor. It already has an enemy to its north, which is the Islamist bandits themselves. So I see I see a slow roll of tensions here as Nigeria starts fighting back against these Muslims. These Islamist extremists. I don't think calling them just Muslims is fair, but we might, we'll have to see what becomes of this, because we could see a sort of, as a solution to these sorts of issues, a formal military pact between Nigeria and Niger, to where Niger is informed on what Nigeria is going to do in advance, and so it can take whatever precautions are necessary, and that way they don't butt heads as much, because most of these operations are going to have to be carried out in Niger because that's where the Islamists are. So, in order for Nigeria to fight against the Islamists who keep crossing their border and hurting their people, they have to go into Niger. So, perhaps we might see a formal cooperation between the two, especially as France is sort of 
pulling out in uh, on mass in Mali. So that's a massive force of people that might not be present, or at the very well already aren't present. If we're being honest, uh, in this specific part of the Sahel, the Niger Nigeria border, there aren't there isn't much of a French presence there. So. We could see some formal cooperation here, and it'll be the start of Nigeria's rise as a regional power. And they have quite a lot of room to grow. Maybe they'll end up being a rival to the East African Federation. We'll have to see. But um, it seems like Nigeria has reached a sort of tipping point, uh, at the very least an inflection point, where they're changing course in the, the way they've operated with regards to the Islamist militants, so now they're trying to go on the offense rather than staying on defense and watching hundreds and thousands of people die. So we'll see what becomes of this. It's a very interesting story. And still in Africa, we'll move over to Morocco because protests have erupted in Rabat, that's the capital of Morocco, and these protests have erupted over rising costs of living uh, such as gas and electricity prices and food prices. And these are caused primarily due to inflation. Now, that's something we can relate to here in America, although the inflation, uh, while it's they say it's at 7%, most people who sort of dig into the numbers put the number at somewhere in the double digits range, so talking about 11 to 14% instead of 7 and I'm, I'll be honest, I'm more inclined to believe those numbers than the numbers we're being given because the people who are giving us the 7% number are the same people who told us just a couple months ago that there was no inflation and then said that the inflation was transitory and now they're saying that it's here to stay. So I'm more inclined to believe the double-digit percent inflation numbers than the numbers that are being given to us by the people doing the inflating, which is the Fed. Uh, an institution I am fully in favor of abolishing, but we're gonna. There are protests in Morocco over inflation, and there's eventually gonna be similar protests in America, I'd imagine. Especially if gas prices rise like they will continue to rise. I mean, uh, and we'll, there's something else about that that I'll get to. There it is. It's later on, but I'll get into that later. Meanwhile, the White House is. Um, Ukraine invasion date of February 15th has passed and nothing happened. So the war scare is now turning into a bit of a humiliation for the Biden administration, or at least that's what it looked like a couple of days ago, because as of now, the situation has changed. Like, And it's incredible how fast it has changed. Uh, I have a segment on what's going on in Ukraine that's uh, coming up in the meat but I wrote this yesterday and the situation has been altered greatly enough to where uh, this humiliation has turned to something else it's not quite the humiliation it was because now we have some escalation uh, as there has been shelling between Ukrainian and Donbass troops. So, where before there was literally nothing, and it made the White House look like fools, now we have shelling, but it seems to be that the shelling has been primarily instigated by the Ukrainian government rather than Russia invading Ukraine. So, that is to me the bigger danger, although it it has garnered some attention, and there are lots of articles now talking about potential World War III because of the shelling that's going on and because of other things happening in Ukraine that I'll get into. But this is sort of the thing that I've been keeping my eyes on, which is what Ukraine does to the rebels, because that's, that's the key to this whole thing. Whatever Ukraine does to the rebels will determine the real course of action, not um, a war scare over Russia randomly invading Ukraine all of a sudden, or 
well, Russia randomly invading Ukraine all of a sudden, or how we have to add Ukraine to NATO. My eyes have always been on what happens between Ukraine and the rebels, because that's that's the key. That's the most important piece of this conflict, because if it is to escalate, it is to be because the rebels were attacked by the Ukrainian government. And that's the only way this escalates just within Ukraine itself. There are things that NATO can do that would escalate it. There, Ukraine could join NATO officially, but that would require NATO to accept. And the other way that this escalates is if NATO deploys troops to Ukraine, which with or without its consent would kill it because Russia would come in. But looking specifically just at what goes down in Ukraine, the only way this escalates is if Ukraine attacks the rebels. So now we have shelling along the line of contact, and that's what's sparking fears of World War Three, or at least that's what's garnering so many articles and other people talking about potential World War Three. Uh, so it's nice to see that everyone else is coming around to my position on this one, which is a conflict between Ukraine and the rebels is what's going to spark a wider conflict, not necessarily Russia just one day deciding they're just going to walk into Ukraine. So, another another good old jolly good job for me uh, calling that. But we'll, we're not out of the woods. We're, there's a whole lot left to go. And there's no, there is no de-escalation. Everyone keeps calling for de-escalation, but there's no de-escalation happening. So, we'll, we'll really have to keep our eyes on this one. This is the danger. And I, I've brought up my belief that Ukraine, if there is a domino to lead to a multi-front war between the U.S. against China and Russia, it's going to be because of what happens in Ukraine, not Taiwan, due to the nature of these conflicts. So, we'll keep our eyes on this, and I have a segment coming up for it later, so I'll come back to this, but we'll definitely keep our eyes on it moving forward, as we always do. Uh, in other news, the Beijing Winter Olympics have concluded. Macron has met with Putin, and essentially uh, what happened was they agreed to more talks on Ukraine. France tried to bring up the Normandy 4, and those sorts of agreements, Russia was unmoving on their request, which is at this point a demand because uh, they're kind of tired of asking, uh, the demand that we, they return, that all sides enforce the Minsk agreements, which is that the core premise of that, uh, in order to move forward with this conflict, it requires that the Ukrainian government have direct talks with the rebel leaders, which Ukraine doesn't want to do, and because no one in the West, namely Europe and the United States, no one on this side... <laughs> is pressuring Ukraine to have those direct talks and conversations, Ukraine isn't going to do it. So in essence, the powers that could force Ukraine to follow through on the Minsk agreements, which they themselves agreed to, the powers that could force Ukraine to do that are not pressuring Ukraine to do that, so Ukraine is not doing that because they don't want to. And Russia is saying, you want de-escalation? That's the way to do it. Nothing else is going to suffice. And so far, everyone thinks Russia's bluffing on this. And Russia always ends up calling their bluff instead by doubling down on the Minsk agreements. So, we have a standoff, the dead, a deadlock really, because Russia's drawn its line in the sand, its red line. If there is to be anything going on between... Russia and, say, France, U United States, UK, over the fate of Ukraine, it's going to be within the format of the Minsk agreements. Ukraine has to talk to the rebel leaders, and then they have to work out something on their own, because this is a Ukrainian civil war, not an international conflict, although that may have just changed. We'll get into that in the segment, but that's sort of 
him, Putin, drawing the line in the sand. And none of the leaders from other countries, even the ones that have been reaching out to Putin, seem willing to live up to their agreements. Because it's not a concession. Like, you'll, you'll see other people in this space say that it would be a concession to Russia to follow through on the Minsk agreements. But it's not. You have all these countries that agreed to these to what was stated in these agreements but it seems that as it stands only Russia and the rebels in the Donbass are willing to follow through on those Minsk agreements and everyone else was playing games or at the very least they're playing games now because none of them want to live up to the contract essentially because they all signed on the United States wasn't a part of that, I don't believe. But France was. So, you gotta, you gotta look at it that way. And see that there's international agreements that point towards what Russia is asking for. Which is to live up to and honor the agreements that we signed. Which is direct talks between Ukraine and the rebels. But no leader is willing to live up to their commitments. Instead, they view it as a concession to Russia, and so we get nowhere. So, even though France, and Macron specifically, is doing what I believe to be the right thing, which is reaching out to Russia, instead of sitting back and demonizing Russia, because that achieves nothing, but going out and talking to Russia, diplomacy, even though he's willing to do that, it's sort of it's sort of diplomacy for show at this point because nothing of substance is really being said or done except for Russia reiterating its demand that everyone adhere to what they all signed on to, which was the Minsk agreements. And other countries who signed on to these agreements trying to worm and weasel their way out of the commitments that they made. And Russia ain't having it. So we have a standstill. Um, but notable movements in favor of the Russian position. Although we'll see if any countries in Europe or even the U.S. administration are willing to pressure Ukraine to honor its commitment in the Minsk agreements. That'll, that, I believe, will be the primary de-escalatory factor all right if nothing else even if you don't remove troops from eastern europe in the case of america pressuring ukraine to go through with that would be the biggest de-escalation we're going to see out of this where everyone gets to save face because you're forcing through international law it's an international agreement that's the only way i see we get de-escalation out of this Either that or uh, the Russia and the rebels just win the war and, well, they get to save face. As a matter of fact, they get glory. Everyone else gets uh, shit on. <laughs> so, a standstill on the Ukraine issue. And we'll, again, we'll dive into that later. I have a spicy segment on that one. But in other news, uh, Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro has also visited President Putin. Uh, it's more of a symbolic gesture because there isn't exactly much that Brazil is involved in with regards to Eastern Europe in general. But to see that Bolsonaro is reaching out to Putin instead of reaching out to Washington, D.C. for some level-headedness on this issue does say who on the international scene is sort of winning the PR battle. Who's winning the PR battle outside of, say, America and Europe? It seems that Russia is winning this PR battle, as a lot of countries, even within Europe, are sending their leaders to meet with Putin and not sending their leaders to meet with Biden. That's pretty big. Pretty big. Definitely a, a win for Russia on the diplomacy side. So, 
seems that Russia is playing their hand very well here, uh, although many will say otherwise, but from what I observe, it seems that they have a definitive upper hand in this situation, because they are on the defensive and they have the high ground. So, seems like they are in the superior position here. They have other world leaders. You have India. I believe there was a meeting between Modi and Putin as well. You have meetings between... Ah, uh, my goodness. You have meetings between Putin and Xi. Uh, they met right before the Beijing Olympics began. And they made a series of agreements that they signed on to for cooperation. So... Overall, Russia's position is gradually strengthening, and the American and European position is gradually weakening because you have Ukraine not living up to its agreements, you have the Donbass rebels holding the line and getting stronger, alright, they, they're being supplied with Russian equipment. And even though Ukraine is being supplied with lots of equipment from NATO, you gotta think. If they couldn't fight the rebels back then, when the rebels were a, a ragtag militia, how are they gonna beat the rebels now? How are they gonna beat the rebels now? Even with all this equipment, if the rebels are equally backed by Russia. So Russia's gaining more recognition of their position internationally. The rebels are getting stronger. And every time that we've got, oh my goodness, we've gotten to a point now where we're setting dates for invasion. February 15th has come and gone and it's made the Biden administration look like fools. They pushed the date back to the first week of March. So when March goes by and there's still no war, or got, if there's still no war, they're going to look like even bigger fools. Because now it looks like, definitively, it looks definitively like you're just making this up. And God forbid, we end up in a situation where it's Ukraine that begins the war. Because then the entire narrative, the entire idea that Russia's going to invade Ukraine falls apart. Because it's the Ukrainians attacking the rebels and Russia protects the rebels. Which is exactly what I said is going to go down. And the, at that point, you can't say that Russia is just randomly invading Ukraine. And that they they just don't want Ukraine to exist. Because it's very clear that the Cassus Belli is Ukraine invaded the rebels. And Russia's protecting the rebels. So, it seems like the situation is rapidly devolving for people back in Ukraine, and getting better and better for the Ukrainian rebels in the Donbass. Meanwhile, Croats in Bosnia, those are Croatians, Croats in Bosnia are now threatening to carve out their own administrative region in Bosnia over disputes with Bosnian election laws. Laws that they believe um, within the current system do not give them enough representation. So, uh, that's going to be a can of worms, because Croats are not the only ethnicity in Bosnia. Uh, there's already the Serbian separatists within Bosnia that want the Republic of Srpska. So, I'd imagine that this is just adding fuel to the fire. That could lead to a fracturing of the Bosnian state, even if it remains together, um, you know, in name. If it remains together... Um, nominally, there's the word I'm looking for. Even if Bosnia remains together nominally, it could be, in effect, three separate countries in a short period of time, given these sorts of events, because a separate administrative region uh, over election laws and representation, well, that's in and of itself a justification for leaving Bosnia outright. A representation issue so it looks like Bosnia is going through a bit of a rough time right now just sort of keeping everything together maybe they'll be successful I mean the Serbs haven't left yet and the Croats don't want to leave just yet but 
both of them are pushing in those sorts of directions. So we'll see what Bosnia does, and if they're successful at keeping their country together. Which I'd imagine, as most Bosnians would like to see, their country stay together and not balkanize further, like what happened to Yugoslavia, or heck, what happened to Austria-Hungary. Meanwhile, in South Africa, anti-foreigner mobs are on the march. Uh, they've marched on migrant camps in the country, and the participants of these mobs accused the foreigners of taking up jobs in the country. Uh, a common complaint when you have frustrations and tensions between dem the native populations of a country and large numbers of immigrants coming in at the same time. You have competition for jobs, and the people who live there already feel threatened by the immigration and the numbers of the immigrants coming in when it's large enough to cause these sorts of issues over time. So, you have those sorts of tensions, and you can see why there would be tensions like that when you look at the unemployment rate. Because in South Africa, the unemployment rate of the country currently sits around 35%. A third of the country is unemployed. And among within that figure, it was like a, I think it was like 60 or 80% of youth were unemployed too. So, yeah, this is, that's like, that's actually worse than the unemployment levels we saw in the Great Depression. And, wow, that's incredible number. No wonder they're upset. Uh, um, so now they're taking out their anger on the migrants. So that's just going to add more fuel to this fire. And I don't imagine any jobs are going to be created from doing that, but at the very least, you're, you're down one or two people competing for your job. Uh... If you want to look at it in a grim way. Although, I don't, again, this isn't going to solve anything. But it, it could mean that South Africa is heading for a crisis of sorts. So, we could be seeing something messy arrive in South Africa in the not-too-distant future. If things don't at least start to improve, even if it's at a minor and very slow pace improvement is improvement and South Africa could use some of that right now meanwhile in Brazil the, there was a major mudslide in Petropolis and this one was a real whammy because it has led to the death of over 120 people I believe the number I saw was 123 it could be more than that but this is the number I saw. 120 people from this mudslide. That's one heck of a mudslide. You, goodness. President Bolsonaro, uh, he commented on what this town looked like afterwards. He said it looked like a war zone. And when I looked at it, I'd agree. It's, it's a mess. It looks like, it looks like after a hurricane hits, you know, and after the water levels subside enough to where you can walk on solid ground, yeah, it looks like that. Just a big mess. Looks like, looks like Fallout is what it looks like. If you've ever played a Fallout game before, it sort of looks like that, except, you know, it's, everything's not radioactive. So, hearts out to the families of these people who've died in this mudslide. Uh, that's a very big tragedy. Very big tragedy. Uh, back in the Balkans, we have Serbia, whose ambassador to Portugal has, well, their, ambassi their ambassador to Portugal fell off a cliff and died. You know, y you can't make this stuff up. Uh, he was found alive, though. Uh, but he li he died later from his injuries, so these are goodness. This, this went dark very quickly. 
Um, but we have some <coughs> better news, which is that a boy who was trapped in a well for four days was rescued in Afghanistan. Uh, they had like large cranes and stuff, but they got him out. So that's good news. Meanwhile, Sri Lanka's government-run oil company uh, has said something shocking, which is that it doesn't have any more money to buy oil, which is likely the result of oil prices having climbed to around $100 a barrel. And this is the thing I was talking about when I was uh, talking about fuel prices rising in America. So inflation combined with higher and higher oil prices, you get higher prices at the pump. And now we have oil prices that are at $100 a barrel and may even go up. Uh, and even if the price per barrel doesn't go up, the government, this government company in Sri Lanka expects that energy prices will rise because they aren't being, they aren't able to buy any more oil. And they expect prices to rise throughout the country, in addition to worsening the current fuel shortages, because again, you can't have fuel if you can't get oil. So, it seems like Sri Lanka's in a rough spot, but hey, at least the winter is almost over. Uh, are they in winter in Sri Lanka? I, I think the southern, southern hemisphere is like the opposite of our weather cycle in the northern hemisphere. But are they in the northern hemisphere? Uh, just barely, but this, uh, you know what, they're close to the equator, so they might just be constantly tropical, but, um, energy prices will un rise anyway, because they don't have oil, so that's gonna be a mess, they might have to be donated some from somewhere, and uh, I don't know where they're gonna get that from, because None of their neighbors have oil. None of their neighbors produce oil. Uh, maybe Arabia? Iran? The United Arab Emirates? Maybe one of them has some oil they'd like to donate? Either that or the, the Sri Lankans just eat the loss and have rolling brownouts. We'll see what happens with them. But uh, that's Sri Lanka. Israel, though, has announced... In a stunning turn of events, they've announced an end to their vaccine passport program. They call it the Green Pass. So they're ending that after, well, basically bullying their population and their population getting pretty fed up and upset about it. Either that or they don't want a trucker convoy to happen in Israel when they just got done dealing with the Palestinians. They just got a... a truce with the Palestinians in, I believe it was Gaza? Yeah, Gaza. So, I think they'd want no more troubles domestically. They'd rather focus their energies abroad. So, they're ending the vaccine passport program, and Israel has also conducted missile strikes on targets just south of Damascus, like right outside the city. And to those who don't know the significance of this, Damascus is the capital city of Syria. So we're just violating other people's airspaces and bombing places right next to their capital city. So the Syrians obviously didn't take very kindly to this. And Israel is, for lack of a better word, Israel's back. But we'll see if they're better than ever. That remains to be seen. And with them being resurgent and just as aggressive as always, we will also see if any significant pushback arises from their neighbors. Because their environment, as we've noted and tracked over the course of these past few months, Israel's environment has changed. It's not the Middle East it was just a couple months ago which itself was not the Middle East of a few months before that. Things have changed rapidly in, in the time that Israel's been fighting Palestinians. So, we'll see if any of the other countries, namely Iran, has anything to say about Israel's resurgent aggressiveness. Although right now, Iran seems to be 
pretty distracted with the nuclear talks going on between them and America, uh, which is strange given that uh, Iran and America were not the only countries to sign on to this thing. Um, I believe France, Germany, and Russia were also signatories to this, but France, Germany, and Russia are nowhere to be found on these talks. It's just, at this point, bilateral between the United States and Iran, even though it was the United States that pulled out in the first place. So, the United States pulling out shouldn't necessarily mean that the deal is off, because there are four other... There are three other countries there, one of them Russia. You, you'd think that the agreement wouldn't just fall apart like that, but if America leaving causes the whole thing to fall apart, then maybe it wasn't a worthwhile deal to begin with. If, it, if it's that fragile, I mean, because if Trump comes back, you know he's just going to walk away from these talks if they're not done already, and even if they're done, he'll just pull out again. Or if someone closer to Trump's political affiliation gets into the White House or takes control of Congress, they're going to pull out because the Republicans don't like the deal. So, if one country pulling out of this deal breaks it, then the deal may as well not be renegotiated again because America's either not going to be a part of it or it's not going to be a permanent part of it. It's just going to be coming in and out and in and out. And having to renegotiate it every time it, there's a change of politics. So, Iran's pretty distracted right now. But I'd imagine one attack from Israel will focus their minds greatly. And we might see, for the first time in a while, a retaliation. So, we'll, we'll keep our eyes on this. Israel is back. But we'll see if someone else has anything to say about it. So that, that's the Middle East. Uh, just north of them, anyway. Georgia's defense minister. Uh, that's Juanser Berkuladze. Juanser Berkuladze. There we go. He states that joining NATO is the only way to preserve Georgia's in territorial integrity and that's a quote my response to that quote is that the exact opposite will prove true if he joins NATO he's gonna die All right? if Georgia joins NATO they're gonna die they are physically removed from the main body of NATO which is in Europe NATO has a better ability to defend Ukraine than it has to defend Georgia because uh, sure Turkey is there but uh, Turkey doesn't have a border with Georgia they have a border with Armenia and so Georgia the only way you get to Georgia from NATO is by way of the water you can only get to Georgia by water through the Black Sea and the Black Sea is dominated by the Russian naval presence so you'd essentially be condemning your country to death, and it seems like this defense minister has learned nothing from the Ukraine situation, and seems to have learned nothing from the invasion that Russia commenced against them back in 2008. Um, NATO is the last thing Georgia should have on its mind right now, if it's smart, but seems that NATO is very appealing these days for countries that probably shouldn't be trying to join it. Yeah. Uh, but they can try. I mean, every country gets to make their own decisions. Just uh, understand who your neighbors are. Because Russia won't tolerate that. And if they have to occupy, if they have to occupy parts of Georgia to stop them from doing that, they're going to do it. As a matter of fact, they're already occupying parts of Georgia in South Ossetia and Abkhazia, which are a direct which are direct results of the war in 2008. 
Apparently, Georgia has learned nothing from that. So, they can try. All right, they can try. But what's just going to end up happening is a stronger Russian hold over the Caucasus. And I'm already of the opinion that the Caucasus are on lockdown. So, you're talking adding all of the Caucasus. You're talking adding Ukraine to... Oh my goodness, Russia just has a whole windfall lined up for them, and they don't even have to be the aggressors. They can just let their neighbors make really bad decisions and walk in with a free Casas Balai. That's incredible. <laughs> That's really inc <laughs> incredible. Goodness. That's Georgia. Uh, we'll see what they do. I pray that he's not, he's not the final say in Georgia's defense uh, strategy. I hope this is not the final say. I hope someone else has the final say, like the Prime Minister. And I hope that the Prime Minister says something different, a lot different from that. Uh, shoot, the CSTO would have been a better bet than NATO. At the very least, then Russia's your ally. <laughs> I, I'm, I, I'm just throwing it out there. It's an option. I'll just leave that on the table. And we'll uh, go from there. That's Georgia. Meanwhile, France has announced withdrawal of troops from Mali, and they cite a breakdown of relations between them and the Malian government for this change of course. That is the definitely not random, definitely not rapid fire news. So now we get into the meat, and this episode is looking like it's going to be a lot longer than I thought it was when I put it together, but eh, well, the news is the news, so we'll get into the meat in just a minute. And we're back to get into the meat, which I suspect is going to be smaller than the not-so-rapid-fire news segment of this episode, but hey, uh, more news for thee, and more work for me. So we'll move on with this, and we'll talk about the an update to the Freedom Convoy in Canada. So let's get into this. Justin Trudeau has declared a state of emergency in Canada. The country has banned people from bringing gas to the truckers, uh, but simultaneously, you have the provinces Alberta, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Quebec all getting rid of their vaccine and mask mandates as well as their vaccine passports so you have essentially what what is that half two-thirds of the country's land total landmass going against the mandates and basically siding with the truckers requests slash demands however you want to view it but ontario which is the province where the capital is uh, they have refused to make any of these changes. Instead, they're cracking down. <laughs> and on the part of the provinces that have gotten rid of these mandates, they claim it had nothing to do with the truckers protesting. And, uh, sure. Sure, it did. It's just It just so happens to come right after they started protesting. Sure, we'll, we'll, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. But Ontario says no, and the capital, Ottawa, also says no. The Canadian government says no, so they're cracking down. Mounted police have been sent out, they've taken to the streets, and there was even an instance where they trampled a lady who was on a, a scooter. So, it's starting to get a bit messy as they try to crack down on these protests because the protests are sort of just sitting there in their cars trying to end these mandates by seizing up the flow of goods and supplies in the country to force the government's hand but the highest government you have a number of uh, provincial governments making these concessions but the Canadian federal government, or the central government, they don't want to make these concessions, which means the protests go on longer. So even the provinces that were on board with the demands 
have to stick this out until the federal government until they cry uncle this is going to go on so even though you have a number of provinces that have agreed with the protests and have agreed with the sentiments they're still going to have to suffer the cost of zero supply chain because the truckers aren't driving they're not they're not driving goods to places they're in a line so even when you have support they have to bear the brunt of the protests until the federal government of canada says okay we're gonna give in but they don't want to do that instead they've cracked down they've also made a number of other moves the canadian government has targeted the bank accounts of the protesters and we talked about them essentially seize trying to seize the funds from the gofundme um gofundme instead of handing it over to canada they refunded and the truckers have instead raised money from gifts and go which is another sort of donation platform and they have vehemently opposed any idea of refunding or handing over the money to the government of canada so the truckers have access to their money this time and i believe that one's up to seven million it might be up back up to 10 million as well but i believe the number was seven million the last time i looked at it so they have a new means of funding themselves and they have lots of popular support to keep them going uh there's even been reports of bouncy houses for the kids because they brought the family with them. The Canadian government has responded by not just targeting the bank accounts of these protesters, but also by making moves. There, there have been moves made by the Canadian government to make the emergency powers which were put into effect when the protests began, there have been moves made to make those powers permanent if they haven't been made permanent already as of the time of this recording so i believe it is safe to say that canada is heading towards a crisis and right before our very eyes all over the mandates and the vaccines and the interesting thing about this is that the truckers of canada are what 90 percent of them are fully vaccinated so it's not a matter of they just don't like the vaccine. They don't like the mandates. They don't like the vaccine passports. They don't that's what they're against. So you have this these people who have done what has been asked, which is to get the vaccine, still standing up against mandates. And that's sort of that that's what makes it the PR of cracking down on them even worse. Because they're because you have this debate where people who don't want to get the vaccine are labeled anti-vax. But what do you do when the people against the mandates have already taken the vaccine? It's it's a losing PR battle for the Canadian government. And I'd imagine they're just going to start losing worse the more force that they use to try to break up the convoy. I think Canada's heading toward the crisis. And given the nature, the, the constant secessionism going on in Canada, where you have Quebec flirting with secession, you have Alberta flirting with secession, you have uh, the Maritimes of, namely Prince Edward Island, flirting with secession. You have all these places flirting with secession. Um... What do you think is going to happen when the Canadian central government starts cracking down on them? Because Quebec is in on ending mandates. Alberta's in on ending mandates. So what, what happens when they start getting cracked down on for being against the mandates? Well, suddenly secession is going to be the word of the day again in Canada. Or at least that's a possibility. <clears throat> the protests have seemed to bring people from across Canada together, so there is that. But if they start getting cracked down on by their own government, well, sure, the Al the Albertans might finally get along with the Quebecois, but neither of them like their own government. So will they try to vote them out? 
or will they try to leave? Because they've both both of those provinces have flirted with the idea before, and thanks to Quebec, um, their secessionist phase, it was deemed legal. Secession was made legal in the courts. It was decided that it was legal. So, breaking up might, a breakup might happen in Canada if the Canadian government isn't careful with how they handle this situation. It's very, it's a lot more delicate than it would seem on the outside. Especially when you consider that there's like a single road connecting East and West Canada. Because Canada's a big place, but a lot of it's sort of tundra and there's a lot of broken up rocks and terrain that make building things hard thanks to the glaciers but Canada is in a very fragile position right now uh, granted it'll be interesting to see what happens when a similar convoy happens in America because it'll be a bit harder to sort of shut things down with a convoy like this and the way that you've seen it happen in Canada America's a big place with a lot more roadway connection than Canada. Uh, we have can we have roads going from north to south, east to west, northeast to southwest. Canada doesn't really have that. They have a single set of lines going east to west, so it's easier to shut things down there than it is in America. But it'll be interesting to see what happens when a similar trucker convoy, which is being planned for the United States. It'll be interesting to see what happens when they begin their convoy. And it'll also be pretty entertaining to see how the Biden administration handles this type of situation. And it'll uh, it'll be interesting to see if they learn anything from the Canadians' experience with this. So, lots of entertaining slash interesting things to come in the future with regards to these sorts of freedom convoys and a potential crisis situation befalling Canada depending on how bad the government response to these protests gets because it's the federal government that's holding things up but that could be a good thing and uh well it's not a good thing for them it could be a, a bad thing or a worse thing for the central government of Canada so either they get a mass revolt against them or they get secession. Or they could undo the lockdowns and undo the mandates for vaccines and passports. That's always an option. That's The off-ramp is always there. It's not like doing that would be unpopular, as is clearly evident by the popular support behind this protest. The popular move would be to undo these mandates. So the off-ramp is always there. But doesn't look like they want to take it. That's that's Canada. But now we get to Ukraine. The thing I've been saying that I was going to get to for the first 40 minutes of the episode. Because what I have today is the Ukraine war scare from the other side's perspective. Amidst the Ukraine-Russia war scare... The rebels of the Donbass, who we're going to focus on today primarily, the rebels of the Donbass fear not a Russian invasion of Ukraine, but a Ukrainian invasion of them. So it's a complete flip. A complete flip where they're afraid of Ukraine invading them. They're the ones who are afraid of being invaded, and in my view, they're the ones most likely to be invaded, and it is an invasion of them who will likely, that will likely lead to an escalation of this conflict. And the increase in shelling along the contact line, which has been escalating just over the past couple of hours in the lead up to me recording this episode, the shelling along the contact line has greatly fueled these fears over the past few days 
Denis Pushilin and Leonid Pasechnik. Leonid Pasechnik. Uh, these are the leaders of Donetsk and the Luhansk People's Republics, respectively. So that's Denis Pushilin and Leonid Pasechnik of Donetsk and Luhansk, respectively. Both of them have almost in unison signed decrees for both the total mobilization of their male populace as well as for the evacuation of women and children to parts of southern Russia. For context, the people of these rebel provinces have gradually been given passports by the Russian government since the civil war in Ukraine began back in 2014 which is how an evacuation to Russia is even available to them as an option without Russia bending the rules for them. The announcement of the mobilization, uh, the, the mobilization decree, I should say, the announcement of it by Pushilin in particular, uh, now he's the, Don, he's the Donetsk president, his mobilization decree was such that he called on all men, quote, able to hold a weapon in their hands, end quote, to go to military commissions, where they'd be essentially trained and properly armed to fight in the army. Meanwhile, the evacuation plan that has been not just thought up, but is currently being implemented as we speak, the evacuation plan aims to move over 700,000 people out of eastern Ukraine and into southern Russia. So these are 700,000 women and children and presumably elderly, um, although uh, I, I guess if they can hold a weapon in their hands, they're sticking around if they're a dude. So 700,000 people. That's three-quarters of a million being evacuated out of eastern Ukraine and into southern Russia. And over 7,000 have already been evacuated as of yesterday, which is when I put the this part of the episode together, when I rounded up the news. So the number is likely somewhere between at least ten to 14,000, perhaps even more. So, the way I'm imagining this, I'm ima- I imagine that they'll be evacuated to um, the area that's encompassed by the Russian cities of Grozny, Sochi, Rostov, Volgograd, and Astrakhan. That sort of uh, area in the southern part of Russia, where you see Ukraine and Russia meet. So, that area is most likely where these people are going to be settled. Probably in those cities, a good number of them are going to go to those cities. But um, from what I know, it's a sparsely populated region, so there's definitely plenty of room for them to go. And we might even see new cities that pop up in the region, especially if this evacuation goes on long enough that you get a couple hundred thousand people out of the country, if not all 700,000 of them evacuated from these rebel republics while the men are still there fighting. From what I... uh, I already said that. Putin himself has even ordered that the evacuees be housed and fed. He's sent out that order to the other members of his government. So... Russia is very clearly in favor of backing the rebels. And earlier, I believe it was either today or yesterday, but earlier, Russia even went as far as recognizing the rebel republics. They're recognizing the the rebel republics as independent countries, each of them. So what that essentially means is now, instead of a civil war, Russia is essentially transforming the conflict into 
a defensive war being waged internationally. An international war where Ukraine is the aggressor and these two rebel republics are defend are on the defense and Russia is their protector. S right around the same time that Ukraine is beginning to shell. Um, they're beginning a massive bombardment of artillery shells along the contact line. So at the same time that that's happening, Russia's recognizing the independence of these two republics as separate countries from Ukraine. Meaning that they are essentially transforming the nature of the conflict with the stroke of a pen. Because when you do that, the rebel republics go from being breakaway provinces in Ukraine. It goes from a Ukrainian civil war to an international war. You go from Ukraine fighting to put its country back together to Ukraine attacking sovereign countries who just so happen to be backed by Russia. Because once you recognize the independence of them, these republics as separate countries, you can then put forth formal military guarantees towards them. So then when Ukraine attacks, it's in essentially a declaration of war on Russia because Russia guarantees the independence of them. So step by step, the nightmare scenario, which is Ukraine attacking the rebels and kickstarting the death of Ukraine through a Russian invasion, is coming into view more clearly as to how exactly it's going to go down. Russia recognize their independence so the next step would be an alliance or a formal guarantee of their independence and sovereignty from Ukraine so every step you get closer and closer to Ukraine signing its own death warrant by attacking these republics who are the only people Ukraine's gonna attack they're not gonna attack Russia they're not gonna attack Belarus but as time goes on, attacking these rebel republics is going to get more and more dangerous for Ukraine because the risk of them getting attacked by Russia in return will go up and up and up until we get to a point where Russia is in a formal alliance with these republics who are recognized as sovereign entities and when Ukraine attacks them, that's an attack on a sovereign entity. Russia has free Casus Belli, a free justification for war, and they walk in. But what this sort of gradual approach also does, it also enables Ukraine to back off. The incremental approach gives Ukraine lots of time and lots of opportunities to back off the same time that Russia is increasing their presence and their commitment and eventually the threat of invasion. As they gradually ramp up to that, Ukraine has multiple off-ramps before the road ends and you reach the end of the line and it's a cliff. So we'll see if Ukraine takes those off-ramps or if they go for broke, which is what I was afraid that they would do a couple weeks ago when they started getting all that military equipment from the U.S. and other NATO countries, and you get, started getting all this media hype around them. Oh, Ukraine has an army like this, that they can, they can fight, they can do this. They have grandma trained to fight the Russians when they come. There's going to be partisan war in Ukraine. All that hype that was there just a couple weeks ago, it was my fear that that would convince Ukraine that they have backing that they do not actually have. They do not have the backing of NATO. They do not have the backing of the United States. But all that hype, it was my fear that that hype would make them believe they had more support than they did and that they would go forward with something that would get them killed which is invading 
the Donbass republics. Which, to be fair, again, is something that any country in a civil war would do. They'd try to end the war by taking back the rebel provinces. But they can't do it. Because Russia's there. They can't do it. But it's politically unacceptable to say that or to acknowledge that. So, even though they have these off-ramps, even though they have the opportunity to back off, which the Russians, in their incremental approach, will give them courtesy of that approach, not entirely sure if Ukraine will take the hint or the opportunity. I think the Ukraine tragedy goes on until the bitter end when Ukraine ceases to be and returns to being a geographic expression synonymous with Western Russia. It could be that way. Maybe Ukraine has a complete 180 of their geopolitics and they realign themselves with Russia. That would require a change of government. Uh, It's possible. At this point, not necessarily likely, but it's possible. It would be a smart move to ally with the giant at your doorstep instead of trying to ally against it. But They don't want to do that. And they have their reasons. They Sovereignty, they're afraid that they'll be essentially turned into a puppet state, which is a reasonable concern when you have such a large and powerful country next to you. That would essentially be the guarantor of your independence. And the, the same would apply to Georgia. But then again, fighting against that giant isn't exactly going to be a very smart idea either. But... Well, Georgia's destruction will be very much self-made and irrational. Um, <laughs> them joining NATO and then getting stomped on by Russia for the second time in a, in a, a two decades. Ukraine, their situation arises from them doing every logical action that they can take to end a civil war in their country. That ultimately leads to their destruction. The geopolitics just not in their favor. The cards were not in their favor. And even though they're doing everything logical, like trying to end their civil war, that's just going to get them killed. And that's why I call it a tragedy. They're not doing necessarily anything wrong. But doing the logical thing is going to get them It's going to lose them their country. So the Ukraine tragedy drags on. And we'll see what becomes of it in the future. Although I think I have a good idea of what's going to happen. But that is all I have for you today, my lovely listeners. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world it's changing, and we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So, till we meet again next Monday, Servus.